Hello, I'm Vernon Mann. Thanks for tuning in for this second episode about life as a foreign editor, producer and correspondent for a major UK TV news organisation in the 70s and 80s. This episode's called Time Wasters. Often news editors send you on assignments you know from experience are going to be a waste of time. Editorial meetings spawn fantastical ideas for stories you know just won't materialise. You make your feelings known, but they argue rightly that it's better to try and fail than not try at all. Meanwhile, we spend a huge amount of time hanging about, waiting for something to happen, waiting for the editor's latest mission impossible. Like trying to get to the Falkland Islands in the middle of a war by doing up an old Catalina flying boat. The idea is to have our own crew able to operate independently of the military-controlled media already there. Our boys, three of them, have been stuck in Punta Arenas, Chile's southernmost Patagonian region, for weeks. We flew them there soon after war was declared in early April 82, after Argentine forces invaded the disputed island. It's now nearly May. The crew say the frustration and boredom is threatening their mental stability. As foreign editor at the time, I feel it's my duty to respond to their cry for help. So I send them Soho's finest inflatable woman, by express courier, of course, and they love her. They take her everywhere, to the amusement of the locals, and name her Beryl, as in Beryl the blow-up. She's taken to breakfast every morning and fed sausages through all the wrong orifices. A few days on, quickly bored, they tie a noose around her neck and hang her from their hotel window. The police are called, they spend a night in the cooler and never make the war. The Catalina flying boat never flies again. To Europe now, at the height of what they called the Cold War between Russia and the West. I'm on a plane to West Berlin. My mission, probably impossible, is to contact an East German Defence Ministry official and persuade him to defect to the West, really. This was in the late 80s, before the Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain, they called it, though it was largely made of concrete. Think John le Carré, the spy who came in from the cold. Think James Bond. The deputy editor says, matey, if you can pull this off, it'll be the scoop of the century. He gives me a name and an address. I won't repeat them here. Says he's had a tip that this chap, quite senior apparently, is ready to defect, to cross to the west. He'll tell me no more. I suspect he doesn't know any more. So, do I have anything to offer him, I ask? You know, a plan to get him out, maybe. Some sort of inducement, new identity, safe house, cash, that sort of stuff. Does he have to bring anything out with him, you know, secret documents or something? Matey, play it loose, says the deputy editor quietly, glancing nervously at the newsroom through the window of his door. He pauses for a second, then, reassured that no one's listening, he says, almost whispering close to my ear, See what happens. See how he reacts. If he wants to make a move, tell him we can work something out. Like what, I inquire. He hesitates, searching for an answer. He doesn't find one. Well, he says, nothing concrete right now. Just see what he says, how he reacts. We might have to get the foreign office involved at some stage, but only if we have to. Right now, he's all ours. Good luck, matey, and keep safe. OK. Checkpoint Charlie is the main border crossing from west to east Germany in Berlin. Through the wall, the East Germans put up in 1961 to stop people leaving for the West. Since then, 140 have been shot dead or died while trying to cross it. 
I have these figures in mind as I get my tourist day pass from the East German soldier at the gate. My passport doesn't say journalist. I'd never get anywhere if it did. It says I'm a consultant. It doesn't specify my area of expertise. If asked, I guess I could now say East-West relations. There's a train into East Berlin, a handful of tourists on board and me. The trip doesn't take long. Near the station is a cafe and I go for a coffee. It's lukewarm and dreadful. I stroll along the main drag and browse the windows of souvenir shops selling World War II memorabilia, old military uniforms and helmets, Nazi tat. People on the streets don't look that unhappy, but I guess they know nothing else. Their clothes don't fit very well, I notice. They don't seem to smile a lot. Then again, it's a cold grey day. I'm not smiling a lot. I've got all day and I'm not that anxious to hammer on the door of a would-be defector. I've read the John le Carre spy books and I suspect the feared East German secret police, the Stasi, might already have clocked me. There reckon to be 90,000 of them keeping tabs on their fellow countrymen and foreign visitors like me. So for a while I just watched the Trabants driving by, made in East Germany, spark plugs with roofs, somebody once said, produced without major changes for 30 years. I can postpone my mission no longer. There's a cab rank near the cafe. I get in the one at the front and try to pronounce the name of the street I want to go to. Something, something, Umwurstrasse. The driver is perplexed. I give him the paper with the address on it and he nods. It's a ten-minute drive. He pulls up outside a drab, grey, seven-storey block of flats, surrounded by other drab, seven-storey blocks of flats. Everybody's idea of the East and its drabness. Not really the sort of place a high-ranking government official would live, I thought. But things are different here. There doesn't appear to be a lift, so I walk up four floors. Rubbish on the steps, an empty vodka bottle or two. I don't see another soul, which is not a bad thing. I get to flat 497 and knock. It's dawning on me that this is a very stupid and potentially dangerous venture. A Western journalist poking around a dingy block of flats in East Berlin? Come on. And I don't even have a camera to record whatever is about to happen. Probably just as well, thinking about it. Supposing the Stasi, the secret police, appear, what's my story? Supposing my man answers the door, what's my pitch? Oh, hello, my name is Vernon Mann, I'm a reporter, and I hear you want to defect to the West. No, I can't tell you where I heard that, but if you do want to change sides, I'm sure I can help. How can I help? Hmm, good question. Let me get back to you on that. What if he doesn't speak English? My German is useless. I can say Sprachen die Deutsch. But what use is that? Of course he'll speak German. He is German. I don't know how to say, can you speak English in German? I guess if I say it in English, he'll either respond or he won't. No one's come to the door. I knock again and wait for a very long time for a response. There isn't one. Should I slip a note under his door? What should I say? Give me a call. I can help with your defection. And leave him my phone number? What would James Bond do? Pick the lock, probably, or shoulder charge the door? My man inside, of course, could be a woman, a stunning blonde double agent. I fantasise for a moment or two, then realise I've spent far too long on this particular doorstep, especially if I'm being watched. My taxi is still there, the driver dozing in his cab, I don't think I'm being followed or anything. He drives me back to town without comment, but I reckon his driver's log will be perused later by police as a matter of course. 
So I don't linger in East Berlin. I hop on the train back to Checkpoint Charlie and with some relief step through into West Germany without my defector. I call London, the deputy editor's direct line. He says, hold on, matey, and I hear him shut his office door. OK, matey, shoot, he says, expectantly. I take a deep breath. He wasn't in, I say. There's a pause the other end. Then, no worries, matey, you gave it a go. Go and have a large whiskey. Debrief when you get back. Thankfully, he didn't ask me to try again another day. Another mission impossible. In 1993, they sent me to Geneva to find Michael Jackson. Remember him? Da-da-da-dan, da-da-da-dan. Beat it, I think the song was called. A family in the States has filed suit against Jackson, alleging he's repeatedly committed sexual battery on their 13-year-old son. Jackson is already under suspicion for his so-called slumber parties with teenage children. He's taking a break from his dangerous tour to stay with his great friend Elizabeth Taylor. Remember her? The one that married Richard Burton and others played Cleopatra in an old movie. He's at her mega chalet in Gestad, hiding from the paparazzi as media pressure builds up. Have a poke about there, Vernon, says the foreign editor. See if you can get some shots of him. Get him to talk to you. I point out gently, as if to a child, that Jackson has gone there to escape the paparazzi and it's hardly likely he'll be wandering the streets window shopping hand in hand with Elizabeth Taylor, especially in November in the cold. I've made my point, but it doesn't pay to argue the toss too much. They'll think you're being a difficult old fart, which of course I am. So I get the usual, just go and see what pans out, you never know your luck. OK, OK, Geneva's not a bad place for a night or two, better than hanging around in the office. I team up with a Swiss cameraman, and we drive the 50-odd miles to Gestad. It's dark when we get there, and snowing. Not a soul on the streets, much less Michael Jackson. Even the paparazzi have gone home. We find out where the chalet is, but it's too dark to film. We can just about make out its rooftops, but there are too many security men to get anywhere near it. We go back to Geneva. The cameraman goes home to his family. I enjoy a cheese fondue alone in the hotel restaurant. Next morning, the office says, go and have another crack at it. Why am I not surprised? Anyway, it's a lovely crisp morning, so 50 miles again, and this time we don't even get to glimpse the chalet. It's been cordoned off by the police. So what to do? I scribble a note to Michael Jackson saying something along the lines that I represent a big international TV news organisation and we'd like to invite him to tell his side of the story because we feel he's getting a bum rap from the media. The lies pour out onto the page. I put it in an envelope and offer it to a policeman with stripes. He won't take it. Can I deliver it then, I ask. No, he replies. Oh, ham another day, another fondue. Martin Bashir from the BBC eventually got an interview with Jackson in 2003, but is alleged to have misled and duped the superstar singer. He also forged bank statements and lied to secure an interview with Princess Diana. Look where Bashir is now. Nowhere. And so to France. The foreign desk sent me there to try and find James Hewitt, a ginger-haired former British cavalry officer who claims he's had an affair with Princess Diana, who at that time was still married to Prince Charles. Hewitt is thought by some to perhaps be Prince Harry's father on account of his and Harry's ginger hair. This, I hasten to add, has never been proved and is denied by all concerned, which of course won't stop the rumours. 
The actual affair lasts five years and is later confirmed by Prince Diana in a TV interview with, yep, guess who, Martin Bashir. The affair began, she said, when Hewitt was giving her riding lessons. At the time I'm talking about, it's thought Hewitt's just a bit of a cad, but an interview with him will be big news nevertheless. First, though, I've got to find him. Where to start? Well, Hewitt's obviously fled the UK because he doesn't want to talk to the media, but, hey, news desks rarely put common sense before reality. They believe anything is possible, even if logic dictates otherwise. Annoyingly, sometimes they're proved right. So, we begin our search for a ginger-haired Englishman with an upper-class accent. Somewhere in France, we think. Where to start? We drive down to Samur in the Loire Valley, home of the riding masters of Castelnoir at the French National Riding School. Hewitt, as a former cavalry officer, could well be somewhere in this area, a sort of French Gloucestershire. I stop people under the chestnut trees and ask, in appalling French, Avec vous regardez un anglais avec cheveux roux? Have you seen an Englishman with ginger hair? Non, they say, shaking their heads, smiling at the ridiculousness of the question. No one's clocked him, not even the people at the French National Riding School, who shoo me away like I've escaped from a psychiatric ward. We hold a summit meeting at a lovely Loire Valley restaurant by the river and buy a few bottles of their wine after a tasting in the cellar. Surprisingly, they haven't seen a red-haired Englishman either. We don't have many ideas, we tell the office. Give it another day, they insist, as they so often do. Well, righto then, if you say so. We book into a decent chateau for the night. I can hear the foreign editor at the ten o'clock morning editorial meeting saying, Vernon's on the case. Vernon at that time is finishing his petit déjeuner, savouring the fresh croissants. We never did find Ginger Man, and if we had, it sounds like he might have been in a pretty bad state of mind. Years later, he says he considered suicide after the affair ended, and that, I quote, I got into my car and loaded a few things up to get on the ferry to go to France to shoot myself. Well, at least we've been in the right country. Hewitt says his mother insisted on going with him to France. If she hadn't, he claims he would probably have shot himself. In 2003, he tries to sell his 64 personal letters from Diana for £10 million. There are no takers. The media brand him as a cad for trying to profit from Diane's death. He's still around, I hear, working as a gardener on his family's estate. To Damascus in Syria now, 1998, and I'm here hoping for the release of Terry Waite, the Archbishop of Canterbury's special envoy, kidnapped in Beirut a year earlier. There's a rumour he might be freed and flown here. We have a crew in Cyprus too, in case he goes there, where the British airbase is. Time passes heavily when you're hanging about, so I thought I'd have a go at finding a man as evil as weight is good. Alois Brunner, an Austrian SS officer who played a key role in the implementation of Hitler's plans for the extermination of Jews, the Holocaust. He's in Syria somewhere, likely Damascus. Brunner is responsible for the deaths of more than 130,000 European Jews. Adolf Eichmann, architect of the Final Solution, called him one of my best men. After the war, he escapes Germany, first to Egypt, then to Syria, where he advises the Assad government's secret police on torture and interrogation techniques in return for a pension, accommodation and protection. The French, meanwhile, sentence him to death, Mossad, the Israeli agency, target him twice with letter bombs. Brunner loses an eye and three fingers. 
I go to the Austrian embassy in Damascus. They're extremely helpful, filling me in on the background and giving me an address, though they say Brunner is regularly moved around. I get a cab and show the driver the address. He doesn't look too keen. I flash some dollars. He's suddenly very keen. We whiz through the capital's dusty back streets, camera at the ready, until we pull up opposite a bog-standard row of houses, loose power lines flapping in the breeze, cooking gas canisters on crumbling balconies. This is a street, grunts the cabbie. We have a house number, knock on the door and wait with camera rolling. A minute or two passes and a man opens the door. He's about the age of Brunner. Could this be him? I glance surreptitiously at his fingers. They all appear to be there. It's almost certainly not him, but I ask anyway, Herr Brunner? He freaks. Not here, not here. Go, please, you go, go, go. Not here. And slams the door. Oh, well, I guess he doesn't live here anymore. I am obviously not the first person to come looking for him. Mossad haven't sent him a letter bomb for a while either, so even they must have lost him. And if they can't find him, I've got no chance. He's said to have died in 2001, locked up in a squalid Damascus basement, having fallen out with the regime. Another report says he died in 2010. All reports say he remained a Jew hater, unrepentant to the last. I have another few days in Damascus, then I'm called back to London. Terry Waite spent another four years imprisoned in Lebanon. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. This is Vernon Mann. Look forward to your company next time when you can join me on an eventful flight to Beirut during the Lebanese Civil War. See you then. Music